Hello and welcome to the Connected Community Podcast. Today, my guest, Ann Coleman, shares a four-part framework of how to communicate with your teen and tween and live a life with less conflict. Anne is a parent, educator, podcast host, and recovering attorney. Her son, around 16 years of age, was dealing with anxiety, depression, learning disabilities, and substance abuse, and ended up landing in a treatment facility. He was in an inpatient psychiatric facility and then a residential treatment facility. At the time, Anne had no idea how to communicate or understand her teen, and that led her down a path of research and self-discovery. She ended up leaving her profession as an attorney and is now committed and dedicated to helping other parents understand and communicate with their teens. Anne has a podcast called Speaking of Teens, which is absolutely outstanding and packed full of information. And what I appreciate about Anne the most is that all the information on her podcast is backed by science and has been heavily researched. I really enjoyed this episode. I found it super informative, and I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did. Hello, and welcome to the Connected Community Podcast, a place to explore possibility through mindfulness, movement, and self-discovery. Our intention is to deliver insight and inspiration while fostering conversations that are genuine, unfiltered, and deeply human. We hope you will enjoy today's episode. Hello, today I'm speaking to Ann Coleman, and I'm so excited to have you as a guest today on the Connected Community Podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here, all ready to roll. Yes. And I have to say, you're from Alabama, is that correct? Yes. So I do have a little accent. I know. I grew up in Alabama, and I think as we talk, my accent might come out. (laughs) Well, I try, you know, I have worked on this for years, and it just, I don't know, it just creeps back in. (laughs) Well, I um, I found your Speaking of Teens podcast, and I have to say it's absolutely excellent. And what I appreciate most about your podcast is that it's science-based and it's heavily backed by research. Um, So I'd love for you to share a little bit about your background and your story because you are, as you call it, a recovering attorney. Yes, um, And you're not doing that anymore. And I love when people find their passion in life. And so I'd love to hear your story. Okay. Well, yeah. And I I found my passion quite by accident. And really, if, you know, I would love to not have found it actually, because what we went through for a couple of years was horrific with my son. He, during his um, high school years, when he was around 16 or 17, um, yeah, it hit the fan and he, he, had always had anxiety. He grew up with anxiety. He had it from the time he was an infant, from the time he was a toddler. He was a fit thrower, as as I like to say. He was always, you know, having a tantrum. We would ask, you know, what was wrong? He would walk around all the time saying, I don't feel good. I don't feel good. And we're like, what's wrong? What's wrong, honey? Tummy throat, tummy throat. And finally, a friend of mine suggested that maybe it's that feeling you get in your chest when you're, you know, when it's tight and you have butterflies and it's all in there. He was around two. And I thought, oh, God, that makes so much sense because of the way he acted. And as he got older, we realized, yes, that is exactly what it is. It started coming out even more. And then in elementary school, third grade, he was diagnosed with ADHD, dyslexia, dysgraphia, slow processing speed, all the things. So from that point on, from from about third grade, grade to eighth grade, it was all about school and trying to get him on task and get the medication right and, you know, get the homework turned in and do the things at school and make the grades. And he was in a private school and it was very, it was, it was tough and they had no accommodations. So we dealt with that. It was mostly my, my, the books that I read and everything that I concentrated on, it was all about getting him through school. And then by the time he finished at the middle school in eighth grade, we decided, you know what? He cannot keep doing this. His grades were going down. They were still, you know, the accommodations were basically nil. And they had already said, you know, when he gets to the upper school, it's in, it's going to be even less. 
So we were like, you know what, let's just take him over and um, do the public school. He had gone to, you know, he had done baseball and hung out with these kids in the neighborhood. He knew them all. Um, So he had friends that he could go to school with. So we switched him over ninth grade. Everything went fine. He was making A's and B's. It was all good. But at the end of the ninth grade year, we realized he had been smoking marijuana the entire year. And we had no idea until that point. Well, I, when I grew up with a drug addicted brother and Mm -hmm. what he was a drug addict until he died a few years ago, a drug addict. And so when I found out my son was smoking marijuana, it, it just sent me reeling. I can't even explain it. It affected me like, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I literally had a mini nervous breakdown when, when I found out he was doing it. So my, my fear of him becoming my brother sent me on a mission to make darn sure that he was not going to end up that way, which made me very controlling. It brought out, you know, all the the bad stuff in my personality. I started controlling him, punishing him, you know, staying on top of him night and day. My husband didn't see it that way, but I fought him about it as well. So our marriage was horrible at the time. We went through this for about two years. And the more I punished, the more he rebelled and the worse it got. His anxiety was through the roof. Mine was too. He he was uh, diagnosed with um, major major depression. He was suicidal and he was having these fits of rage. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it. Every solid wood door in our house was broken because he had had these big tantrums. And, you know, I remember when he was little, we we would look at each other, my husband and I, and say, well, at least he's not going to be throwing tantrums when he's, you know, uh, 16, 17 years old. Well, little did we know. Um, so it, it was really bad. And it ended up, he ended up in a uh, psychiatric hospital for a week because we had to call the police. He flipped over our kitchen island. That's how bad it was. And Mm. so we had, we had no choice. The psychiatrists, the counselors, everyone had thrown up their hands and they're like, we, we don't know what else to do. I mean, he's going to need treatment in, in patient treatment. So we got him in the psychiatric hospital for a week. After that, everybody's like, now you got to send him to the residential treatment. We did that. He was there for two months. While he's in residential treatment across the country in California, we were in South Carolina at the time, we would have weekly um, meetings with the uh, family counselor. And they, it was just like this. It was on on Skype at the time. And my son would be out of the room at first and the, the therapist would talk to us and say, okay, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to talk to your son at the, you know, when they're in residential treatment, they don't want to be there. They they hate it. They hate you. Mm-hmm. They're mad at the world. They're just angry and which was nothing new for us. But he was trying to explain to me how to talk to him. You need to validate his emotions. You need to acknowledge the way he feels and you need to, but you need to have firm boundaries and you need to do this. And and I'm like, oh my God, dude, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. What do you mean acknowledge his feelings? You know, at that point I was still like, he needs to straighten up. You know, we need to fix him for me, please. And since him back home. He is not right. So I got a a little awakening right there. He said, look, you need to go read this book, No Drama Discipline by uh, Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. Uh, Dan Siegel is like one of the, the biggest you know, child development gurus out there. And I'm like, okay, I'd never heard of him because again, it was all about ADHD and, and, you know, all the stuff, all the school stuff. That's what I had read. So got the book, of course, and he said, just read chapter four. Well, I've read the whole book because that's just me. So I start at the beginning and I'm reading this book and it's for parents of toddlers, by the way. And I'm like, okay, why am I reading this book? So that, so I started reading it and by like three pages in, I'm crying and I'm like, oh my God, I had no idea this is how you do it. I had no idea that. I'm supposed to be saying these things and doing these things. And now I see what he's talking about, acknowledging his emotions. Now I know what he's saying about, you know, doing this and this and this. So that book was my introduction to 
um, what he he talks a good bit about the neuro, neuroscience in there, um, but just of the the child's brain, and you know he talks about emotions and how we have to regulate our emotions as parents and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh my god, this is the first time I've heard of any of this stuff. So it this was at the very probably middle, I guess, maybe it was the middle of when parts was in, uh, when my son was in this place. And so I kept reading and kept reading and, and I, I read other books and then I started reading studies. And by the time he got home, I felt pretty good about trying these things out. And at mm-hmm. first I can tell you when you've been an authoritarian parent, like I was, which is, you know, someone who's all about, you know, obedience and do as I say, and, and all this stuff. And I really wasn't like that until he, you know, began smoking marijuana and I started parenting out of fear. But when, when you've been doing that, it's really hard to reverse order. And when you have Mm -hmm. not had a grip on your own emotions and you've just been, you know, yelling and, and punishing and doing all this stuff, it is really hard to reverse it. But within a few weeks, you know, of me trying to do these things, my son was finally going, okay, wait, mom's acting different. So maybe I should act different. And it was like the, the switch was just flipped all of a sudden Mm. and things just started clicking and making sense. And I thought, oh my God, I have got to teach other parents about this. I, because I was getting from all of my friends and even from the counselors, nothing about how to do this. And everybody was like, no, you got to put the hammer down. You've got to tell him this. You've got to, you know, keep, take his phone away, do this, do that. No one was talking to us about emotions or feelings or being aware of your own emotions and being calm and you know, none, nothing like this. So I thought, well, I, you know, I'm a pretty smart cookie. I know if I didn't know this, there are plenty of parents out there that also don't know this. And, you know, it was just amazing the amount of, of information out there that I had no clue about. And so I started studying the adolescent brain and learning about the changes the brain goes through and studying emotions and studying emotional intelligence and mindfulness and all the stuff and really wrote myself a book with about, you know, 300 citations so that I could learn it myself so that I could then turn around and teach parents. So it took me about two years of mm-hmm. educating myself and I still educate myself on a weekly basis for the podcast. But um, so in all of this studying and in all of this reading and all of this research and all of this writing, I have come up with this kind of four-part framework that I've realized that if parents can understand these things and get these things under control, then their life with their adolescent will be so much better. There will be less conflict. Your relationship with them will be better. You will be able to um, influence their behavior, unlike, you know, trying it the way I did. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm glad to talk about that. I think you know, that's kind of my, my, the pillars of, of what I talk about is, you know, just figure this stuff out, get this stuff right, and you'll be okay. And I know lots and lots of parents don't know this stuff. So that's kind of what I preach. Yes, I would love to hear more about that. Before we talk about that, were you able to repair your relationship with your son? And how long did that take? Because that's kind of, miraculous if you're able yeah. to do that at such a late stage. Well, actually he was two weeks from turning 18 when he came home from residential treatment. Um, he was there two months. So we brought him home and it was probably three or four weeks before things were calming down. He still was out of sorts when he got back home. And actually we moved from South Carolina and brought him here to Alabama to my mother's house because we did not want to go back um, to the place where he had hung out with the people that he was hanging out with and to our home, which had turned into a battlefield for two years. The vibe was just bad, you know, and I just, we did not want to do that. So brought him here and the first few weeks were still rough, but, but literally gradually, I would say within, you know, six or eight weeks, things were getting so much better. And we did, we were, able to have some really good talks. I explained to him what I was doing, what I had read, what I understood, what I understood about his brain, you know, in little bits and pieces. We talked about this stuff. COVID hit during this time. So he actually Mm -hmm. 
was at home with us for another maybe around 18 months altogether. And by the time that was over, I felt like we were healed. And I'm still apologizing to him all the time when I think about Mm -hmm. stuff. I'm like, God, I'm so sorry I did that. But from what I can tell with him, he has totally forgiven me and, you know, says it's not a big deal. And we do have a very close relationship. We can talk about anything. He calls me all the time. He is doing, he doesn't call me all the time. When he does call me, we have good conversations. I'll Uh say that. He doesn't call me all the time, but he, he lives in Colorado, but he is doing great. His anxiety is like almost nothing. He takes no medication. He's doing fabulously well and, and living on his own with roommates. And, and he's a professional snowboarder. He's actually sponsored now. So that was his goal. That's fine with mm-hmm. me. He's happy. I'm happy. So yeah, mm-hmm. we were able, I feel like we have repaired the relationship. Thank God. And I'm guessing a big part of that was the accountability piece for you. And, um, and taking ownership and what you did wrong and expressing that to him probably made a massive difference in repairing things. I think so. I mean, you know, I know it's hard for a lot of people to realize when they've, you know, made a mistake and done something, you know, like this and and correct course. For some reason it was easy for me. And and you know, I know it isn't for a lot of people, but for me, it was just like, oh my God, okay, that was stupid. Let's let's fix this and let's do it the right way and apologize for it. Um, mm-hmm. And I, that is a big step for a lot of people. But I tell people, it's almost like, you know, being an alcoholic, you have to admit there's a problem, you know, acknowledge it and then change. And until you do, there's not much anyone can do to help you with your relationship with your teenager because you have, you're mm-hmm. right. You're right. You have to take ownership of it and realize that it's something that has to change. And then you have to tell your child. I tell people all the time, tell your kid, you now know what you've done wrong, apologize for what you've done wrong and tell them you're trying to do better. And this is Mm -hmm. why. And then, you know, I just think, you know, be a human, be human with them and acknowledge Mm -hmm. it. So I appreciate you recognizing that it, it was pretty easy for me to, to do, but I know it's Mm -hmm. not easy for everyone. But knowledge is power. And so when we know better then we can do better, and sometimes we can't do better because we don't have that knowledge. So I'd love for you to share your little pearls of wisdom because I think a lot of people don't know how to talk to teens or tweens and, um, or how to relate to them because they seem like little alien creatures. Oh yeah. Well, and, and, and you're right. I mean, this, uh, this is something I say all the time too. I mean, we don't know what we don't know. I mean, you know, it's not our fault. It's people, we don't have a manual. We say this all the time. Nobody hands us a, a little book when we leave the hospital with our kids and says, you know, this is exactly how you do it. I mean, there's lots of books out there, but yeah, this is not an easy job and you don't know what you don't know. So, you know, what I try to tell people is just get to the point where you can say, okay, this is not working for me. You know, it's like Dr. Phil says all the time, well, how's that working for you? You know, if, if you're to the point where you're arguing mm-hmm. with your kid all the time, you're punishing and punishing and nothing's working, then obviously something needs to change. So, so I kind of, look at this way. Number one, the thing that I tell people is you've got to understand how the adolescent brain works. And when I say adolescence, we're talking about kids from the time for a girl, from the time she starts her period, you know, and nowadays it can be as early as nine years old and that's puberty that it's hit. And a a boy is usually more in the 11 or 12 year range when it kind of hits them. But their brain changes so much at the beginning of puberty. We, and I won't get into all the technical stuff, but basically what happens is their brain is wired so that um, the fight or flight response is like, super, super sensitive. Their amygdala, which controls all these emotions, is super sensitive to every stimuli, everything in their environment. And it makes mistakes all the time. And it feels like things are threats that are not threats. Our amygdala is what looks out for threats in the environment. It's what goes, oh, that's a, is that a snake on the ground? And you jump, that's our amygdala. In 
In adults, the amygdala does this, but it's not as super sensitive. And we have another part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex that is already fully developed that can step in and go, oh, no, that's not a snake. That's just a stick. Chill out. Calm down. The adolescent brain's prefrontal cortex is not completely finished being programmed until their mid to late 20s. And mm-hmm. if they have ADHD, it's a couple of years even further that they're, they don't have full uh, executive functions. <clears throat> so that prefrontal cortex is where all the executive functions live. It's where, you know, it's what helps you make good decisions and use self-control and focus and plan ahead and all those good things. That's why teenagers are not great at these things. That's why they have a hard time using self-control. So when their amygdala is putting them in fight or flight, literally where they're like, (gasps) that they don't have that prefrontal cortex to go, wait, chill out, calm down. It's just your mom asking you if you want toast or, you know, a muffin (laughs) for breakfast. It's not a big deal. So they are there. And so if you haven't experienced this, I mean, it is, it's, it's almost laughable if you can sit back and kind of look at it as a science experiment, Mm -hmm. because that's exactly what it is. Their brain is wired to work this way. So when you understand that, that it is not their fault, they are not doing this on purpose. Their brain is literally wired to make them assholes sometimes. It's just Mm -hmm. that way. They they can be jerks. So another thing that's going on with their brain is the uh, reward system is hyper, is hyperactive, revved up. And that's the part of our brain that recognizes pleasure and that um, reinforces us doing these things that are pleasurable. And in an adolescence world, everything is pleasurable. If they get their hands on a vape or they get their hands on alcohol or, or they're playing sports and they get applause and they're, or they're on stage and they're doing drama, all these things that give them pleasure, it's more pleasurable during adolescence. And because Mm. the prefrontal cortex is still wiring the things that they do during adolescence over and over that gives them pleasure, those things get hardwired in their brain. And that's why it's so much easier to become addicted to things during adolescence to, you know, they can try a vape once or twice and they're addicted in, you know, alcohol, marijuana, all these things, they become addicted to things so much easier during adolescence. And it's much harder to undo that later. So keeping them away from things as long as possible, the older they are, the better chance they have of not being addicted and not not having that issue when they're an adult. So Mm -hmm. getting them involved in things, in positive things that are rewarding, like drama and sports and things like that will take the place, hopefully, of those negative things. So knowing, you know, all of these things as a parent helps because when you see these behaviors, it's much easier. It's so easy for us to go, oh my God, why are they so, you know, they don't think. What what were you thinking when you did that? Well, they're not Mm -hmm. thinking because they're not capable yet. Their prefrontal cortex is not helping them in that regard. So what we have to do, our job as parents, is to help them learn these things, to help them with their skills of self-control, to help them learn the skills of focus and planning ahead and all these things, rather than blaming them for not knowing how to do it instinctively because they they don't, they can't until that prefrontal cortex is finished. So helping them do that is, is huge. So understanding these things helps an adult, helps a parent have empathy for their child, and it helps you temper your responses and your reactions mm-hmm. to your kid, which is the second part of the framework, as I call it. Um, we have to learn how to be aware of our own emotions where they're coming from, what's going on in our with our thoughts and emotions and how it impacts our behavior so we can regulate those emotions as they relate to our child. So when, you know, I had this deep feeling of fear and dread when I learned my son was was smoking marijuana, my my whole thought process was, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, he's going to turn out just like my brother and his life is going to be hell and he's going to end up in prison and oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And so I'm panicking and 
trying to make it stop, trying to fix him, trying to force him to do things my way because of that fear. And it can be fear or it can be that you grew up in a home where obedience was the thing where, you know, parents were in charge and they were the boss and you did what you were supposed to do. And that's that. So there's a couple of different, you know, areas there where parents really screw up. It can be your parenting style or it can be fear that causes you to be controlling. But learning where these things are coming from, learning what triggers you um, to have this this feeling of anger or fear that's underneath that anger or uh, panic, if you can learn what it is that is causing that in your brain, what are the thoughts you're having? Where is this coming from? Once you recognize that, then it's so much easier to regulate yourself because you can tell yourself, look, okay, he's not my brother. He's not the same person. This is, you know, 30 years later, this is not the same situation at all. I'm not the same parent that my parents were. You can, you know, start looking at it a little more rationally. And one of the things that helps tremendously with this is mindfulness meditation. It's something that I tell everyone, if you don't do it, you should do it. So we really push that because it helps you to be in the moment with that child in that day, at that day, at that time, and stop thinking about what could happen in the future or what has happened in the past, but be with your child in that moment. So being able to be calm and think allows a parent to be more intentional with their parenting rather than just reacting to whatever your kid is doing in that moment. Um, so that's a, a huge, huge things that, that I tell parents, you you know, you've got to be aware of what you're feeling and you've got to get a grip on it. And then I'll talk about mm -hmm. number three. Well, and that takes some skill and some practice too, right? Learning oh, not yeah. to get triggered and learning to sit in our discomfort. And, um, and what I'm hearing is also that a lot of it, we personalize it and it's not personal. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a good point because a lot of parents will say, well, you know, they're, they're manipulating me or they're trying to manipulate me or they're being, um, I've, I've seen this before, um, entitled. They're just so entitled and they're so spoiled and they're so mean. They're not doing this on purpose. They are not doing this to you. This is happening to them. No one wants to feel out of control. No one wants to feel angry all the time or moody or, you know, be angry with their parents. So learning that it does help take that, um, that personalization, it helps that a lot. And you can, you know, then back up and go, okay, how can I respond to this intelligently and without, um, all the emotion in it. And, and that's, um, the, the third part that, that I like to talk about is what do you do, you know, when your kid is having um, you know, a meltdown or when they, you know, when you have to tell them no, or when you have to, or when they've done something wrong and you have to discuss it with them and they're, you know, acting out in their own, with their own emotions, how do you handle that? And, um, there's a, uh, a fella called John Gottman, Dr. John Gottman. And some people have heard of him because he also invented this, um, pay, um, couples counseling, marriage counseling, the Gottman method. So that's a very popular thing with, um, with counselors. But he also, I think it was even before that, he um, was very interested in parents and children and how they interacted. And he did lots of studies on this, observing parents and their kids and how, um, you know, the different parenting styles as far as emotions go. How did they treat their children's emotions? And so he found about four different styles. And one of those styles, which he found to be the best, was an emotion coach. He called these parents emotion coaches. And what they did that was so special, um, and, and he did these studies where, you know, he looked at the kids long term and the kids turned out so much better. They had better self-esteem. They had, you know, they were better in school, just all the way around. These people, these parents would acknowledge their children's emotions, which, um, which means 
when your kid is having uh, a meltdown, when they're angry, when they're frustrated, when they're, you know, sad about something, instead of going in and invalidating them by saying, it's okay, calm down. It's not mm-hmm. a big deal. Stop it. You, you know, you won't know these people. You won't remember these people 20 years from now. They don't matter. All of those things that a lot of us tend to say, and I admit I did it. I, the first words out of my mouth were always calm down. So I don't know if you've ever had a fit and had somebody tell you to calm down, but it's not a real good feeling <laughs> and it doesn't make you calm down. So, mm-hmm. and I'm, as you can tell, I'm very high strung. I have anxiety. I have ADHD. I've been told calm down my whole life, but it never occurred to me how bad that felt. And so I did it to my son. So calm down. It's not a big deal. Just get over it. Mm -hmm. All those things are invalidating. What you want to do is validate your child's emotions. Tell them, I'm listening. I get it. I I see that you're in pain. I see Mm -hmm. that you're afraid of this thing that's going to happen or that you're, you're nervous. I see your frustration. It's very frustrating when X, Y, Z happens, or yes, it does make us angry once, you know, somebody does blah, blah, blah. Or so you're letting them know that they have a right to feel the way they feel. You're acknowledging that in that moment, they are okay having this emotion. They don't have to stop having this emotion. What they may have to do is stop behaving the way they're behaving, but we don't address that in that moment. Um, You know, if they're yelling or they've said uh, something disrespectful to you, you don't stop in that moment and say anything about that. You address it later after they've calmed down. And by acknowledging their emotions and giving them even an emotion word, you know, you maybe have heard name it to tame it. You're, you're giving them permission to feel that way. You're helping them understand how it is they feel and why they feel that way so that they can begin to calm down because they know you get it now. I mean, I can't even tell you how many times my son yelled at me, you don't get it. You don't understand. And I didn't because I wasn't Mm -hmm. listening. So to be able to acknowledge their emotions mm-hmm. and give them an emotion word, you have to listen to them. You can't cut them off and tell them, stop it, or don't be disrespectful or calm down. You have to listen to what they're saying. And if you need to figure it out, you still are like, I, I, I don't get it. Then you ask what we call curiosity questions. You know, well, okay, so tell me again now what, what was said or what happened or what did you see? And you try to understand where they're coming from and why they feel the way they feel and what it is they're feeling so that you can help them realize it. Once they know you're hearing them and you're listening and you're helping and you're helping them name it and all these things, then they can begin to calm down. If you don't, they are going to escalate because they're trying to convince you of how they feel. They're trying to make you listen to them. So if you, you know, if you, um, what was the word now? My my brain is gone. Um, if you don't acknowledge them, oh, if you invalidate their emotions, then they're just going to escalate. They're going to try to convince you they're angry. They're going to try to convince you they have a right to be angry. So when you do this, they start to calm down. You can also like put a hand on their shoulder, touch their hand, you know, put your hand on their back. And that touch releases oxytocin in their brain, which is the, you know, some people call it the feel good hormone. It's, it's the, the, um, neurotransmitter that's released when women breastfeed their children, their babies. It's, it's the, you know, the hugging and the touching, and that will also help them calm down if they're in a space to receive that loving touch, because my son, if Mm -hmm. I had tried that, he would have probably smacked my hand away. So it just depends. (laughs) But do you know, this is what helps them calm down. Then as they're calm, you can help them problem solve. That's another part of it is helping them understand and realize maybe what they need to do to fix this situation. If it's a situation that needs to be fixing, fixed, but you don't jump in with your own opinions about how to fix things without Mm -hmm. them asking you. What you're trying to do is ask them 
questions to maybe pull it out of them. Like, well, what do you think you could do? Or what do you think you could maybe do next time that would help, you know, this not happen again? You know, you're just trying to help them think because you're trying to help them build this bridge between their prefrontal cortex and their amygdala so that the next time and the next time and the next time, maybe they do start thinking about, well, wait a minute, what can I do to fix this? Or what, how can I repair this myself? So, and, and if you don't have a grip on your own emotions, you cannot do this. You have mm-hmm. to be calm yourself because if you jump in there with your own dysregulation while they're dysregulated, then things just get out of control. So, and understanding how their brain works helps you realize, again, that they're not doing this on purpose. It helps you get control of your own emotions and it helps you to do this emotion coaching that you need to do and understand that you need to listen. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge thing that, that's one of the things that when I read in the book, that very first book I read about how to do this, I'm like, oh my God, well, no wonder you know, no wonder he's acting out and no wonder he's doing this because I have never acknowledged his feelings. When he had tantrums, when he was little, Mm -hmm. what I read in books was ignore it, leave him alone, let him go Mm -hmm. to their room and Mm -hmm. and tantrum it out, you know, have a fit. That is not the way to do it. That is not right. And so I messed up on those, you know, on those things too, when he was younger, but, um, you know, it's emotion coaching is an amazing thing. And when you, when you first start doing it, when I did, I was like, Oh my God, what am I supposed to say again? What am I supposed to do? What am I, because I was still, my emotions were still, I would get so nervous when he would get anxious, I would get anxious. So, Mm -hmm. and, and if we're anxious, our prefrontal cortex does not work. It's, you know, the old amygdala hijack thing. We can't think. So we do have to learn to take a breath and know that every situation with our teen or tween is not an emergency. You know, you don't have to react right this second. You can take a step back. You can take a breath. You can remind yourself to be calm. I don't have to react right now. So learning that and then learning how to interact with them when they're doing this. Now, another thing is when they're, when they are so dysregulated that, you know, they're just slamming and throwing or beating the walls or whatever they're doing. There's no point in even trying to emotion coach at that point. At that point, Mm -hmm. you have to separate yourself and just, you know, let, let at least some of that calm down before you even start to try. Um, and when it gets that bad in, in some cases, you know, if it goes on and on, like our son did, then, then that's the time that you know that you might need to seek, you know, external help or outside professional help so that someone can step in and, um, you know, start over, help you with a do over (laughs) with your child. Um, Mm -hmm. but then, and I don't know if you have any questions about that, but then I can go on to the fourth part if you'd like to about discipline. I am curious if, if, if a parent is really dysregulated and the child is really dysregulated at the exact same time and the parent isn't able to go into that space of regulating themselves, is it always best to walk away? Like what advice would you give parents in that situation? I, I believe it's always best to walk away. If you cannot regulate yourself, if you feel if you feel it coming on that you're going to start yelling or, you know, mm-hmm. screaming at your kid or lecturing, all of those things are bad, then you just need to say, I need to step away for a second and say it out loud to your child. If they're screaming, mm-hmm. yelling, just say, I'll come back in a little bit and we'll, we'll both talk. Or if you're dysregulated mm-hmm. and maybe they're not all that dysregulated, but you feel like you're not mm-hmm. going to be able to hold it together or say the right things excuse yourself and just say, mm-hmm. I'm afraid that I might yell if I talk right now. So I'm going to mm-hmm. go in here. I'll be back. Don't, don't follow me. That was a bad thing. My son would just follow me from room to room. Yeah. I would try to get away. And <laughs> so sometimes I would have to just like leave the house, but yeah, just oh separate gosh. yourself. If you feel like you're going to be out of control, the best thing you can do is just separate yourself. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I've done that with my little boy too, is, is, I won't, I won't stand here while you speak to me like that. So I need a break. And when you're ready to talk to me in a kind way, then, you know, and it works, it does work. Um, and it, and it, because I feel like 
Sometimes the kids or the teens are wanting that engagement and they're wanting that interaction to kind of like butt heads. Um, yeah. And that is an opportunity to kind of take some space. And yeah. because if we give them that, which is what sometimes they want, it definitely almost always escalates the situation. Yeah. Well, and the, mm-hmm. the thing is, I mean, I, you know, it is what we do have to remember is they are not thinking that they mm-hmm. want to engage in this thing. You know, it's not, it's not them deciding, I want to argue with mom. It is mm-hmm. literally their brain switches and that fight or flight mode takes over and they're doing this. It's beyond their control in that moment. So mm-hmm. helping them to control it you know, by, by listening for a second and then saying, look, you know, okay, I'm listening. I'm listening. You listen, you do all this stuff. And then you can say, look, I get that you were upset. I get that you were angry, but you really hurt my feelings when you talk to me that way. It's really not kind. And I, I'm, you know, I can't just stand here and let you talk to me that way. Every single time you get mad, remember that their, their prefrontal cortex and even a kid, you know, if they're very dysregulated, they can't think they're, they're, that prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. is gone. So they are not thinking about what they're saying or how they're saying it or how ugly they're being. So addressing that, stopping them in the middle of it to say something, if they're having a fit is not going to help anything. They're not going to mm-hmm. hear you, but they can, after they've calmed down, you can go back and say, look, I understand you were upset and I don't blame you for being upset. I get it. Okay. And mm-hmm. I understand. And, and explaining to them how their brain works really helps too, so that they know what's mm-hmm. going on because it feels very out of control, you know, because you are. So understanding mm-hmm. that about themselves helps too. And when you start out like I did and you start shutting them down and you start telling them to calm down or you start telling them to stop having a fit or, you know, go to your room. And when you can be nice to me, come out. That is an opportunity to emotionally connect with your child that you have missed. Mm -hmm. Because when they are dysregulated like this and you can connect with them and listen to them and do this emotion coaching, you are making an emotional connection with your child. You are helping Mm -hmm. them realize what they're going through and you're helping them with their emotions and you're helping them to calm down. And that is that deep emotional connection that during adolescence, it's very hard to get. So as crazy as it seems, you have to almost look at these situations as an opportunity, an opportunity Mm -hmm. to connect with your child, because there's not, once they, you know, hit puberty, they would rather be with their friends. And that's evolutionary. Mm -hmm. That is the way that it works. Because if they were sitting in the cave, you know, centuries ago and didn't go out and find their own tribe, they would have been left out in the cold to die, you know, starve and be hungry. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an evolutionary thing that the brain causes them to separate from us physically like this. And we have to understand that. But emotionally, they still need that attachment. And that's one of the things that's so important to realize as they're, as they're moving into this, like around 13 is usually when people start to really see it, 12 or 13 with girls and boys, is that they just don't like it. It seems like they just hate you. They don't like you anymore. They hate you. They don't, they don't like you uh, breathing in front of them. You breathe too loud. You, you chew too loud. Why do you get those things out of the garbage can like that? Why do you put those things up? Like, why do you do that? It, they're irritated by every thing you do. Mm-hmm. And it feels horrible. You feel like an idiot. You feel like a failure as a parent. You just feel like the worst human mm-hmm. being. on. And I can remember doing this to my my own mother. So mm-hmm. it's, they don't hate you, but it is a, it's all, it's this mechanism in their brain that helps them to separate themselves from you because they mm-hmm. can't be attached to us on into adulthood, or, you know, they will be living in our basement when they're 35. So it is, again, it's an, it's part of evolution. They have to go out and find their own people, find a mate, procreate and move on. Mm -hmm. But it's very hurtful. But that's, that's kind of goes into the, um, you know, the fourth part of this framework is understanding 
that separation piece and understanding how to approach your child um, after, you know, all this, the puberty sets in and they're an adolescent. How do you talk to them? How do you discipline them? How do you communicate? And the big thing is they're moving away. They're individuating. They feel in their brain like they're an adult. They feel like they know, just like parents all throughout the centuries are like, they think they know everything. Yes, they do. They do. They feel <laughs> like an adult and they feel like you're an idiot and they know everything. Mm-hmm. And if you treat them, like an idiot, you treat them like a child, you are going to escalate things beyond measure. You're going to, you know, that's the same as invalidating their emotions. You're invalidating that that they are growing into the adult that they feel like they are. So mm-hmm. it's so important to support that autonomy in them, to help them, um, feel like they matter in the family, to feel like their opinion matters, to listen to them, to always, you know, engage their discussion in things that matter. So it, it that um moves right into the the discipline piece because if you are after they become an adolescent, you are still making all the rules unilaterally and you are still trying to force them to be obedient, blind obedience, do what I say right now. If you are still doing those things, you are threatening their autonomy. And that is the quickest way to cause a conflict with your team is to threaten their autonomy. Yelling, lecturing, punishing, all of these things, telling them what to do, doing things in a unilateral way threatens their autonomy and causes conflict. So instead of that, what we have to do is we have to realize that once they become an adolescent, our job is no longer to manage them and to make them behave a certain way. Our job is to guide them into adulthood and teach them the skills that they need to learn so that they can become a responsible adult. We are walking alongside them. We are guiding them, but we're no longer managing them. So your influence lies in your relationship with them. It lies in them mm. wanting to align themselves with your values. It, it is about them wanting to do what you would want them to do when you're not around to say, make this choice, not that choice. And if you don't have that relationship, you don't have mm-hmm. that connection, forget it. They are not going to mm-hmm. be listening to anything. They're not going to do what you would want them to do. And they're going to rebel. If you just start out with an adolescent, treating them with the same respect you would want to be treated with as an adult, mm-hmm. you know, don't talk down to them. Don't treat them like a child. Don't treat them like an idiot. Give them credit for, you know, having the brain that they have at least and mm-hmm. inviting discussion, talk to them about maybe what the consequences should be if this happens or that happens again. You don't always have to issue mm-hmm. consequences the first time and consequences, natural consequences are a great thing to take the place of logical consequences. Then I want to get into all the differences, but there are guidelines mm-hmm. about consequences. You know, if you go too far with consequences, you're just making them a punishment, which again is going to cause that antagonistic relationship between you and your child. You know, punishing mm-hmm. them by taking their phone away when what they did was, you know, they didn't do their chores or whatever. Well, what does the phone have to do with chores? Nothing. Right. That's not going to teach them anything about being responsible and doing their chores. So, you know, you have to really think about these things. I've seen parents before who say, oh, my God, I have I have taken away everything. They don't have their phone. They don't have their Xbox. I've taken the hinges off the door. They don't even have a bedroom door. I've taken everything out of the, I mean, literally I've seen people say Mm -hmm. this and, and I still, then they're still misbehaving and I don't know what to do. And I'm like, well, no wonder. I mean, Mm -hmm. once you get that far down this road and you have, you know, made them hate you in such a way, you are not going to get any cooperation. When you think about it, it's common sense, but it is, Mm -hmm. you know, it is totally 
you know, opposite of what a lot of us have the instinct to do or the way we were raised to parent our kids. So it's Mm -hmm. just, you know, you've got to remember that give them a say, let them, you know, be their guide. You're trying to teach them how to be an adult. Remember that rather than punishing them or, you know, for retribution for things that they've done, that is going to teach them nothing. So the whole point is get creative, try to teach them how to be an adult, talk about what they've done and give them the decision-making power over things that don't matter in the end. Um, there's a, a professor, Lawrence Steinberg, who's written lots of books and ton, done tons of studies. And I, I took this out of one of his books. He says, If it is not dangerous, unethical, um, illegal, unhealthy, or likely to close some door better left open, let them decide. So Mm. is that, is a hairstyle unhealthy, illegal, dangerous? You know, no, it isn't. Their clothes, their bedroom. I mean, this is the thing that so many parents, I mean, it's like a battle constantly clean your room, clean Mm. your room. Is it worth a battle? When you can simply Mm -hmm. close a door and not look in their room, if their clothes are dirty, natural consequences, they wear dirty clothes or they put them in the hamper. You know, there are so many things that as parents, we fight with our kids about constantly that are not that important. Mm -hmm. And this has been so amazing, such incredible advice that you've given And, um, your podcast speaking of teens is absolutely incredible. There's a lot of episodes on there. There's a lot of really, really good information. Um, and I know that there's a lot of other resources that you have. Mm -hmm. So I'd love for you to share your offerings with, um, with everyone. Yeah. If you'll go to speaking of teens, um, and you, that's just the main website. There's, there are tabs at the top for the podcast page and for free resources. And I do have several parent guides that you can go in there and, um, choose from and download and read. And we also have a Facebook group at, uh, speaking of teens on Facebook. So come join us. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom. It's super appreciated. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Connected Community Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please like, share, and subscribe. I can be found at www.nikkiyyoga.com, N-I-C-K-Y-Y-Y-O-G-A.com. Until I see you again next week, I hope you have a beautiful day.